Welcome to our brand new episode of Judge Me by My Cover. Joining me today in the podcast is my partner in crime and my co-host, Brightly Lima. We just came back fresh from a conference called the Voice Summit in New Jersey. It is the second year of the Voice Conference as hosted by the team MODEF by Pete Erickson, who did a fantastic job and not just talking about where is the industry or where are the industries heading towards voice technology, but also there was a theme of inclusion throughout the whole week. Inclusion, not just in terms of the obvious, inclusion of different female speakers, if you will, that, that's the uh, low hanging fruit and the easy one to spot, but inclusion of different voices from different industry, inclusion of people with different abilities that shared the stage. The one remarkable thing that we saw there was a panel that we talked about, how can we leverage voice technology to provide more inclusive solution? How can we be more thoughtful in our designs? And on the panelists, there were people who could not speak. There was a person who couldn't see, and there was someone who couldn't hear. But yet, the abilities or different abilities, if you will, did not prevent people from sharing their thoughts. And we also learned something new, how to clap hands without actually clapping so that people who had trouble hearing could actually see what we were trying to express. And that was one touching moment of the week. So anyway, um, today's podcast, we wanted to share some thoughts about diversity, about the theme of inclusion, about how we could do better as a society. And that, that's something that is always on our mind. I think one of the things uh, that came out of Newark to me was just the fact that they hosted it in a city that has so many economic challenges. Um, You saw them bring in um, high school students and people that were at the New Jersey Institute of Technology studying not just voice, but, but different ways to make our society more inclusive. I think it was really great to see them bring in hundreds of students from the School for Deaf as well in order to learn about what was happening, not just in their own city, but what was happening in such a sort of forward thinking technology um, focused event like voice. The, the panel that you talked about, I thought, you know, there was really nothing of all the events that I've gone to over the last decade that was, was almost more moving in order to see and hear and experience what it was like for these individuals to have focused so much on bringing ideas to light for those that can't hear or can't speak or can't see. And it's, it's one to say that you're designing for inclusivity and it's another to hear from people that are doing it every single day that also have similar challenges and can talk about how we need to relate more um, to people that don't have every faculty, you know, that don't have the ability to, to experience life in the same way that many of us do. So that to me was, was one of the most fascinating parts of the event, um, not just the focus on technology, but the people that went there, the people that were experiencing it with us. I like the part that you just talked about um, around the, the um, socioeconomics profile, if you will, of, of the city of Newark itself, where the um, event was hosted in, um, in the university. 
and the environment around it and how it almost feels like if you walk around the city of Newark, there are invisible lines drawn across different blocks of the city. You could see the profile of the people that are vastly so different when you quote unquote cross from one line to the other side. And I love the fact that, you know, we, the event was hosted in there to bring light to, you know, there are different cities, different parts of our society that needs uplifting, that needs attention, that there are good people everywhere. doesn't matter what your zip code is, but it's the job is on all of us to shed insights, to shine a light on those and to figure ways out to close the economic gap that so many of our cities are experiencing right now. And that's the thing that was interesting about Newark too. I mean, when you look at some of the um, efforts that uh, that New Jersey Institute of Technology have done to train people in their communities, I think there was um, a, a statement that had said that of all the sort of inner city universities, the economic uplift that uh, people that go to NJIT experience um, after graduating is one of the greatest in the entire country. And you can see it, um, like you said, that there's this divergence between, you know, a, a society, um, not just in the way that, you know, people make money and make income and have education, but you, you see it and you physically feel it on the streets of a city like Newark. Um, there's dividing lines, like you said, that are invisible but you know go three blocks and it's like a different world and you know if if we develop our our societies this way if our cities continue to develop that way how are we going to change that and that's really the challenge that i think that they were talking about with with voice technology is just how do you bring something so important to make sure everybody has access and everybody has capabilities for future types of jobs and roles and sources of income how do you make sure that more of the society is included? You reminded me of uh, something I heard yesterday. Um, took the kids to a show in the Kennedy Center called The Earth Rise. And it's a one hour show that was designed to tell the story of the moon landing of um, narrated by the children, if you will, of a few of the, of the famous scientists that made the Apollo happen. And in there, um, a, a lady that portrayed the role of, um, of, of a African-American computer, if you will, I think that's at those times, that's what, that's what the people were called. And she said, mathematics doesn't care what color your skin is as she was trying to tell this to her daughter and try to encourage her to pursue her interest in science in, in being an astronaut in the future. And in the end, she did, right? And, and it's the same thing if we extended science and technology, voice technology and all those, it should not care what ethnicity that person is. It shouldn't care what color of the skin that person is, because it shouldn't matter. But unfortunately, in reality, though, if you look at how a lot of these AI technologies work, you look at how some of these smart assistants work, it does care 
what accent you have. It cares what origin, what background you're in. And, and I, for one, experience this with, with the various devices I have at home. It understands my children much better than I do because I do have an accent when I get tired or at night. And so it, it, brings, it brings to thoughts, you know, of how we can be more mindful when we create the next generation of technologies, when we create the next generation of designs and solutions, that we can be more inclusive and not just to the people that are around us, people that may look and talk like us, but also the ones that don't look like us. You know, when you when you think about voice versus how we interact with screens today, you know, it's so much of our life is tapping on glass. Before that, it was tapping on keys and looking at glass. And I, I don't think that we quite appreciate how not looking at a screen is going to change the way we interact with information or interact with each other. Um, you know, we, we all like will point to movies like Her where it's like this person in our, our head is helping us along with our day. <clears throat> but when I, when I think about, you know, just looking at a screen and, you know, typing into a search bar or doing research for something that we're writing or the way that we create today, I think it's going to, to really fundamentally change how we interact with everything in our day when voice becomes the sort of mode of choice for our working with a machine, um, the, the possibilities that open up your ability to change your life because of voice, uh, I think is quite different. And the accessibility for that will be quite different going forward. I agree. I still remember last year, the first ever um, voice summit that was held. David Biskey from Amazon, he's a chief evangelist there and he was on our show um, a couple of months ago. And I still remember one thing that he said, his voice is the way to connect people from different corners. Voice is a technology that can be used to connect different generations together because it's something that is so intuitive that doesn't matter if you're a child or you're an older person, you can still leverage the technology to be connected to each other. And, and I think, as you say, that is the power of voice technology. That is the power of such emerging technologies to pull us closer together as a society, no matter the physical distance that separates us. Well, and voice is the first thing that we hear in the womb. It's not the clickety-clack of a keyboard, and it's not you know, the, the touch of a screen. So voice connects us and voice allows us to really be human. You Let's know, hope in, that in the future it's not the voice of Alexa that babies hear the first time. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a frightening thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, a, a lot of these, um, you know, when we're thinking about um, inclusion from a technology perspective, when we think about diversity from a technology perspective, and, and like you mentioned earlier, we look at that from various aspects, don't we? We look at it not just from a gender perspective, even though that's, that's the most obvious, if you will, when we see a mantle. We, we typically <laughs> will be the first ones to, um, to highlight something might be wrong with it. Um, but we also look at it from a diversity of, of ethnicity, diversity of economic backgrounds, diversity of age, and um, diversity of thoughts and upbringing. 
I think those are all very important aspects when we consider how do we make our society more inclusive? How do we make our human race more empathetic? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we saw this last week was, I think, people from more varied backgrounds than almost any event I've been to before. Uh, it was it was really fascinating to me to see the the types of solutions people are working with, and it's it's everything from education and you know financial inclusion uh, from some of the the panels that we saw. But it was it was also you know the, just the way that we can connect um, to ideas and to each other and to work on things to help our communities. Um, it was just a fascinating event. I mean, 5,000 people, how many, almost 400 speakers or more. Uh, it, was, it was a lot bigger than I would have thought as well. I'm assuming it's probably bigger than it was the year before. It was more than double the size of what was um, the year before. So I, I, I think Pete is onto something. He basically, you know, he practically created a, a community that is very tight-knit, that believed in, in the voice technology, but also, um, you know, believe in what we are all doing, right? And that's why everyone gets together and, um, and have a voice. <laughs> um, which brings me to, to a book. That, that we both like. It's called The Moment of Lift that came out a couple of months ago by Melinda Gates. And in here she talked about her experience, her transformation, um, if you will, from, from you know, someone who loves science to someone who met Bill Gates, um, starting a family with him to her own personal change that she experienced through. She talked about being raised in a very traditional environment, um, Catholic, that, you know, when she was pregnant with her first child, she believed that she would, well, just stay home and raise the child. The thought of actually eventually going back to work was not something that crossed her mind until Bill Gates challenged her. Why, why aren't you going to go back? You love your work, right? And, and throughout the book, she talked a lot about how that and eventually her experience with the foundation, her travel in Africa and all of those emerging economies and her conversations with different women around the world has shaped her thoughts, has shaped her agenda and shaped her wanting to do more for women. Um, she didn't, she wasn't born as a feminist, <laughs> if, if you will. So it, it was a very moving book to read. Um, I actually finished it in, in two flights. So I remember going to, um, to Arkansas. So it, she talked a lot about empathy. She talks a lot about conversations. And in here, she, she said something that resonates um, with what we heard last week in Newark, with a lot of things that's been happening around the world, both in the U.S. as well as my home city of, of Hong Kong. It says in here, conversation accelerates change when the people who are talking to each other are getting better. And I don't mean human beings getting better at science technology. I mean human beings getting better at being human. And the starting point is empathy and everything flows from that. I think it's, it's, it's about people listening to a broader um, group than what they traditionally do. 
I think if anything, you know, social media and the way that we receive information today has created more, you know, sort of smaller and smaller communities. And we are too inward, you know, in our perspective. We don't get a chance to to truly have any sense of empathy because we're not looking at a community. We're not looking at other people that are different than our own. Um, so the way that we develop empathy is to understand other people, other people that are different than ourselves. So the fascinating thing, again, about, you know, her, her view uh, is that the foundation itself in the way that they're driving change is just that. It's kind of like the sense of global empathy to understand how they can make the biggest impact. That's why they focus on disease and health. That's why they focus on financial inclusion. And I think we're going to have some people from the Gates Foundation talk about what they're doing in financial services in an upcoming episode. So there's, there's an awful lot that I think we can learn from, from this book in the way that um, she thinks about creating change through empathy. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I want to piggyback on something that you just said. Um, if you look at social media, you look at how we read our news today, right? I think we've talked to enough people who say they stop reading newspapers. They stop reading news. They rely on social media as their source of news, if you will. And, and in a way, that's incredibly sad because if you think about how algorithms work, right, it, it serves up information that are things you're interested in which means those are topics that you're familiar with, the people that resonates with your view, which means that the more you use it, chances are you would be more pigeonholed into one way of thinking instead of the other, right? Whereas in the old days, if you have newspapers, yeah, sure, you'll have a left-leaning or right-leaning newspaper, or actually in the old days, there were more moderates. Um, but you have, a, a, you have a chance of seeing different topics, different things that my spark different ideas and and i feel like as we're moving away as we are getting more and more used to personalization if you will we get personalized news delivered to us we get personalized movies that are suggested to us everything is in the name of of efficiency is the name of well i know what you will like so let me do this so that you can keep your attention on my platform longer. I almost feel like it's doing us a disservice when it comes to developing empathy, when it comes to getting a better understanding of people that are not like us. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, we continue to get sort of pigeonholed into one view of the world. And the more that that happens, and the more the technology is sort of going down that path, it's really about monetization of our attention. And in monetization of our ideas, our values, our beliefs. Now, if we get to the point where we only empathize with people that look like ourselves, and it continues to get worse, how does society then get to be more inclusive? You know, how do we understand that when you visit a city like in Newark or other travels that you have where people aren't like you, that 
you need to ask questions. You need to talk to them and understand their world and share your own worldview. I don't know, you know, how many times through your travels you've had a conversation, not just with someone who, who's like driving you from point A to point B or who's at a, a desk that you check in at a hotel, but people that are working, you know, everywhere uh, in, in what you um, are walking down the street and talking to people that are kind of random strangers. You, you have to get a sense of how people think outside of your own thoughts in order to truly, again, sort of drive an empathetic view of the world. That's why I think it's important, incredibly important to continue to travel, continue to read and continue to provoke your own thoughts by reading something or consuming something that isn't something that you're comfortable with. Or continue to post something that other people might not be comfortable with so it can keep attracting trolls on the social media. And I think what what you said is true. I do love um, talking to to Lyft drivers. Um, A lot of them are incredibly interesting and funny and and worldly. I remember talking to a gentleman that came from Afghanistan, and he's a linguist. Um, He he speaks seven languages. Um, And when the U.S. granted him a visa to move here, he couldn't find a job with his skills, even though he speaks seven languages. So he ends up driving a car for a living. Um, I remember also meeting um, an ex-military person who used to make a decent living. When he retired from service, um, he couldn't find a good paying full-time job anymore. The only full-time job he was able to find was a $10 an hour job. And so he has to supplement by driving Lyft. So there are countless stories of people I think it, it it brings me to another article I read last week or or perhaps the year the week before last that was talking about the gig economy, the digital economy, and how these really nice shiny apps that we're using to get us service on demand. Right? We want our food delivered when we ordered it. We want our Amazon grocery delivered, and our after we place the order and all of those, how behind these shiny objects are humans, laborers that are rounding around being dictated by algorithms and what they do and how fast they do it. And how a lot of the constant stress of being monitored is actually impacting their health. And I posted that article on, on one of the social media channels and someone chimed in and said, well, if they don't like it, they don't have to work. I think, you know, that in itself is, it's, it's, um, it was an unwelcoming conversation because I was hoping, you know, people in my friends group could be a little bit more understanding is, you know, instead of saying it, perhaps we should look at why are the people doing the way that they're doing and how are some of the corporates, for example, DoorDash, responding to, to the well-being of the workers? Because in the end of the day, we always talk about how the well-being of people that work for us, the well-being of the people who work for our company are our biggest assets, right? And the dollars that will flow from that if you treat your people well. Um, and again, it goes back to empathy. It goes back to how we are understanding the needs of people that are not the same as ours and how we could design for them better. Yeah, I think the the article in question talked about DoorDash's policy of letting the the customer who decides to tip actually contribute to 
the bottom line of DoorDash as opposed to going directly to the driver. So if you're doing a delivery for $6 and the customer tips $3, DoorDash was actually taking that $3 and paying the driver only six, not $9. So um, we have to challenge the way that these applications and these companies that are just raising incredible amounts of money are actually paying their drivers and paying their deliverers and paying their labor. Uh, I think that people have this unconscious bias, especially in Western countries where you have fairly significant um, average incomes that, you know, somehow a $10 an hour job is a choice that somehow, you know, when you travel and you experience another culture and you say, Oh, well, this, this seems like this is a lot of money. Um, to, to, to have this meal when I could go outside of the hotel and get it for, for a lot less. Well, having just come from you know, a country where I think the average salary is $240 a month, we, we look at $10 an hour jobs and we look down on them. You know, a lot of people like, think that somehow it's a choice to make $10 an hour. But what we need to do is make sure that not just you know, the, the ability for people to make an, an, a substantial enough living wage is there, but we have to enable our societies to make that more equitable. And that's what is just frustrating when we think about, you know, the gig economy, or we think about the future of work, is that the opportunity needs to be more even. Talk about even opportunity. Only 2% of VC money goes to women-founded ventures. So if we bring it up to our friends across the pond, they will be jealous because apparently in the UK, it's only 1% of VC money that goes into female-founded uh, ventures. And if you look at African-American, the number is even worse, is 0.2%. So if we think about wanting to create a more inclusive society where you have solutions that meet the needs of a wide demographics, then you have to think about how do we enable these different entrepreneurs to be successful in what they do so they can serve a wider constituents so that the products and solutions out there for such a wide and diverse demographics, I mean, half of our country are women, half of the world are women, right? So I don't, I, it's, it's like, um, I, I used this example in um, the RISE conference in Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago, where we talked about diversity inclusion, where I talked about how one time I had experience of having someone presenting a solution to me, and the entire team was white male. Their target demographics are Mexicans, and it's a, a cross-border transmission. And so one question that came to my mind is, how is it that you expect to form a company with your entire staff as white male where you're trying to serve how people sent money back to Mexico if you don't even have the right representation of your target audience serving in your team? Well, then it comes back to why people are doing what they're doing, right? What's, what's the... Why are they um, even going down the path of offering remittance if none of them have actually done a remittance in their life? And, and it does, it's not to say that, you know, maybe they have or have not. And it's, it's truly how do you make sure that the people you're trying to help most are the represented 
within the company and, and the goals of what you're trying to achieve. There was another quote that came from the book. Um, Melinda says, we all want to have something to offer. This is how we belong. It's how we feel included. So if we want to include everyone, then we have to help everyone develop their talents and use their gifts for the good of the community. She goes on and says, this is what inclusion really means. Everyone is a contributor. And if they need help to become a contributor, then we should all help them because they are full members in a community that supports everyone. And I think that's, you know, coming down to the sort of crux of the issue is that in order to develop a truly empathetic, inclusive society, we have to make sure that everyone is involved and everyone is contributing and everyone feels that they're benefiting from what we are creating together. Absolutely, because what they do has to reflect what the community needs and what it stands for the values of the community. Um, she had a, something similar thoughts um, in another part of the book where she said, gender and racial diversity is essential for a healthy society. When one group marginalizes others and decides on its own, what will be pursued and prioritized its decisions will reflect its values, its mindsets, and its blind spots. It's similar to, um, there's another book called Invisible Women, where it talked about all these examples in our daily lives, things that I don't even think about, where because it was designed by men and the data set that are used for tests are mostly constant you know, um, made up of, of examples by male subjects that they didn't take into account of female needs. They didn't take into account of women physiology. Um, one such example was the airbag um, and how because of it, more women end up getting injured in an accident because when it was tested and designed, it had the male body in mind and we're built a tad differently than men. Um, so, you know, part of that could be unconscious bias that we didn't think about it, but part of it is, you know, could be, we could do better, right? If your original design team have people from different um, genders, have people from different cultures, then you would have thought of things where we wouldn't otherwise think about before because none of us could know everything and everything there needs to know. And that's what diversity brings, different thoughts. And that's part of our efforts, right, is to encourage the development of leadership teams that are more culturally diverse, more gender diverse, less, um, less culpable of bias. I think it's, it's, it's necessary that we sort of look at one another um, because it could be that we're developing a culture within the companies that we work with that is, is diverse itself, you know, but if the leadership team does not reflect that diversity uh, of its customers, of its workforce, then there's still going to be an impact on that bias itself. I think there was um, something in the book that she referenced back to um, ancient history where a certain class and certain gender um, had the position and the power to, to make the rules and the laws of the land and how the rest became unfortunate, if you will. They, they bear the consequences of, of, that, of, of whatever it is that was decided for them because they aren't the ones that are making the decisions and hence the benefits 
um, got divided unequally amongst the rest. If you're not brought in, you get sold out. That's what she said. So, anyway, I, I, it was it was a really really interesting book. I I read it once earlier this year, and um, and I started rereading it again, and and I think it's it's um, a lot of a lot of what she talked about. We should already know. I think what challenges we face is that we need to constantly remind ourselves to be more thoughtful, because um, you can't just say, "Oh, you know, I need a woman in my panel," and boom, you go and look a woman, and you look at the same little black book that you've always used to get panelists, and you expect magically someone different will come about, right? Or when you're putting a team together, you can't just go back and look in your same school. Um, of friends who graduated with you in the same class, and then expect to see something differently. You need to take that extra step to be more inclusive. You need to take that extra step to be more thoughtful, and you need to take that extra step to to try to initiate conversations with people that are not in your circle, that are not with your background, that are not doing what you're doing. Because I think in the end, our society needs it. We need it. Well, she goes on to. I mean, she talks about basically the benefits of inclusion. You know, she says, uh, "As women gain rights, families flourish, and so do societies." But what I like about where she goes in the book is that she says, "When whenever you include a group that's been excluded, you benefit everyone." Well, I, I think that when we when we form companies and we think about who we're trying to serve and what we're trying to do and where the profit comes from and who pays and all the rest, we don't actually consider the entire um, capability set of what that company can actually achieve. Whether again, it's something like what we work with in financial services or healthcare or something like that. When we don't have a truly inclusive view on who we can serve, we are excluding the needs of people in our community. Uh, when we ensure that we are including both gender and culture and religion and every other part of society to represent them fully, we are going to benefit not just more people, but we are going to be thinking differently about how we can achieve more change, more benefit for people. Um, equity of all sorts, gender and otherwise, lifts everyone in our society. So we need to make sure that we deliver that in everything that we do. I agree. And inequality is not inevitable. That's something that we always talk about. We don't have to sit here and look at the status quo because we can make the change. You can make the change. We can all together be the spark for change and make our society better, not just for us, but also for our children and the generations that come after us. So, for that, hopefully, you enjoyed the conversation, and、um, thank you for listening in to our podcast today. Thank you.